this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 18. John 18, if you're new, we have been walking through the gospel of John And these weeks leading up to Easter, we're walking through the events of Christ's passion. And we have come to the 12th verse of chapter 18. And today we're going to talk about Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. And as we walk through the text, you're going to notice that the scene of action shifts back and forth between the trials of Jesus and the denials of Jesus. Of Peter. You'll find John 18 in your copy of God's Word. Let's read beginning with the 12th verse. The Bible says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Father, as we go back to this night and this morning when events transpired that impact every single person in this room, we pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Spirit through your Word. Father, if anyone is here who doesn't yet know Jesus, we pray that you would encounter them today. That you would open the eyes of their heart and that new life would begin. Father, for those of us who do know Jesus, may we emerge from today loving Him more, understanding His great love for us more, and understanding more about how much we are loved. May we love Jesus more and love others more. Speak to our hearts right now through Your Word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, our sense of smell <clears throat> can evoke powerful memories and emotions. I was out for a run the other day, and on one of the few days when it was warm enough to do that in March, and I, I, a scent hit me that just stopped me in my tracks. It was wonderful. And it was wildflowers that were growing from a vine beside the road, and it was more than just a sweet scent to me. It made the hope of spring rise in my heart. You know, it was like a signal that at some point winter is going to surrender. It's not going to last forever. And so the scent of those flowers just made hope rise in my heart. Smells can do that to us. A charcoal fire has a very distinctive smell, the burning of charcoal. And whenever Peter would smell that for the rest of his life, he was going to be brought back to this night, a painful memory for him, but he was also going to be brought back to the wonderful memory of a morning on the beach, another charcoal fire, which we're going to read about when we get to chapter 21. But right now we're in chapter 18, and Jesus has just been arrested 
and he's about to go through the first part of his trial. Verse 12 says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. We saw last week that band of soldiers is a very specific term that means a cohort of Roman soldiers. Cohort was a thousand men. They probably didn't bring all thousand that night, but they were there in force. And their captain was there. That's another very specific term that means that the commanding officer of the Roman cohort was personally present for the arrest of Jesus. The officers of the Jews were the the Jewish temple police. And so they are out in force because they fear some sort of an incident. And, And in truth, they had more reason to fear than what they even knew because little did they know they were going to be standing before Almighty God in that garden. And we saw last week that merely by speaking two words, I am, the, the, the whole arresting party was going to, to fall back on the ground. I mean, Jesus could have called legions of angels to wipe them all out. He could have just spoken words and made them drop dead. But he doesn't do any of that. Because Jesus is going to save us by not saving himself. And when one of his disciples, Peter, draws out a sword and cuts off this guy's ear, Jesus tells him to put a sword back in his sheath. Because Jesus saves us by not saving himself. Jesus allows himself to be bound so that we can be unbound. So that we can be free. John 8.36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus on this night allows Himself to be bound so that we can be unbound, so that we can be free. But, but how are we set free? What does Jesus do to, to make it possible for us to be free? Well, this, this binding of Jesus in the garden. They arrested Jesus and bound Him. The binding takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just across the Kidron Valley. It's on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, just across from the Temple Mount. And on that mount, many years before, before there was even a temple there, God told Abraham to go up that very mount and to offer a son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And so Abraham took Isaac up that mount just across the valley from where Jesus is bound. He takes Isaac there and he binds Isaac. And he puts him on the altar. And he raises the knife. And just as he's about to slay his son and the knife is about to come down, the angel of God intervenes and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And Abraham looks, and there is a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. God had provided a lamb to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. And so Isaac was unbound and freed. All of us are in the place of Isaac. All of us were bound 
by our sin, with the, with, with the knife of God's judgment against our sin, hanging over our heads. And God provided a lamb to take our place, to be sacrificed for us. And in the very first chapter of John, John tells us who, who that is. John 1.29 says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On this very day, the very day that this takes place, the very morning that this takes place, thousands of lambs are being prepared in Jerusalem to be sacrificed at Passover. But not one of those lambs could truly take away sin. The Passover lamb who could truly take away sin was the one who was being bound in the garden that night and who was going to be slaughtered later on that day. Verse 13 says that uh, Jesus was then led to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Annas was really the power behind the high priesthood. He was the former high priest, but... He was the one that they still deferred to. And so Jesus is taken to Annas first. Annas was ambitious. He was cruel. He was greedy. He had gotten rich off of the, the sacrifices that were sold in the outer courts of the temple and the exchanges of money that took place there. They referred to those outer courts of the temple as the bazaar of Annas for that reason. And Annas had a special hatred for Jesus because Jesus had overturned the tables of his money changers. And so Jesus is brought first to Annas and then Caiaphas, the son-in-law of of, of Annas, who served as high priest from 1880 to 36 A.D., a, a long period of time, and he survived because he was such a shrewd, calculating political operator. Chapter 11 tells us about the character of Caiaphas. When the subject of Jesus had had come up before the council, Caiaphas had said that it would be expedient for one man to die on behalf of the nation. He didn't mean anything spiritual by that. He was talking cynically in pure political terms. Let one die for the rest. Of course, he was speaking more than what he understood. Because Jesus was going to die in the place of others, so that others could go free. We move from the first part of Jesus' trial to the first part of Peter's denial. Verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now Matthew tells us that when Jesus was first arrested in the garden, they all fled. But what's happened is that after they all fell back, two of them sort of followed from a safe distance. Of course, one of them was Peter. And then John mentions another, but he doesn't mention his name. And that's because it's probably John himself. Whenever John refers to himself, he doesn't mention his name. So in all likelihood, this is John. And it says that he was known to the high priest. Say, how did that happen? 
How does a, a fisherman from Galilee become known to the high priest? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus initially called John and his brother James, it says that they left their father and the hired servants and followed Jesus. So they weren't just fishermen. They owned a very prosperous fishing business. Quite possibly they had done business with the high priest. Some believe that John was of priestly lineage through his mother's side. But in any case, he seems to have been known to the high priest. And for that reason, they let John into the courtyard. Peter was a different story. He's outside. So John walks out to make the arrangements for Peter to be brought in, but first of all, Peter encounters this lowly servant girl at the door. And verse 17 says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And the way that she phrases it indicates she's expecting a negative response. And Peter does not disappoint. He says, I'm not. And the sense of it is, of course not. This man's friend, of course not. This man's disciple, of course not. Now, Jesus had prophesied earlier in the evening that this was going to happen. Earlier in the evening, in the upper room, in chapter 13, Peter had said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Peter's denial is really a warning to all of us. It's a warning against the wrong kind of confidence. It's a warning against having confidence in our own ability our own ability to, uh, to resist temptation. It's it, our, our confidence that, that we could never fall like this. That something like this could never happen to us. That's what Peter believed. I'll go with you to death. would never deny you. It would be the last thing on his mind that he would have ever done, but he's doing it. The moment that we think that we're beyond some sin is the moment that we're setting ourselves up for a fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. You know, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus told Peter, He said, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. And he did. And Peter learned from it. When you read the writings of Peter, when you read First and Second Peter, they're loaded with warnings to be alert, to be spiritually on guard against Satan's attacks. First Peter 5.8, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter had learned. He learned from this night, just like we are to learn whenever we blow it. Verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing 
and warming himself. John's just bringing out the irony of this. Here's Peter seeking comfort for himself while his Lord is being subjected to cruelty. You know, here's, here's Jesus standing trial and here's Peter standing with the enemies of Jesus and warming himself by the spire. I mean, how does this happen? Peter was the most courageous, he was the boldest of, of the whole bunch of the disciples. How does this happen? It happens because Peter was a frail human being, just like every person in this room. And this is why we, we, we have to guard our minds and our hearts and never think that you know, we're incapable of some sin, that it could never happen to us. The moment that we think that, we're, we're setting ourselves up for disaster. We should always walk humbly before the Lord and realize that if we stray from the Lord, we're capable of all kinds of things. We're capable of warming ourselves by the fires of sin and denying the Lord who shed His blood for us. We're all capable of that if we stray from His side. This is a warning. You know, not to coast, not to put it on spiritual autopilot and think that everything's going to be okay. You, do you think that you don't need to be in the Word of God every day? Reading this book, studying it, meditating on this book? Do you think that you don't need to be before God in prayer every day? Walking with Him, praying without ceasing each day, staying close to Him? Do you think that you don't need a local church family and a small group of believers, a Bible study where you can walk with other Christians in close relationship and where you can hold one another accountable? Do you think that? You're setting yourself up, friend. We, we, we need all of these things to stay close to the Lord so this, this, something like this doesn't happen in our lives. We now move to the second phase of Jesus' trial. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And now don't, don't think for a moment that he's actually seeking truth at this point. Far from it. We, we already saw in chapter 11 exactly what they were seeking. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This so-called trial is nothing but trying to get some sort of a legal veneer for murder. That's all it is. They just want it. They have to find some kind of legal structure to cloak the cold-blooded murder that they're about to do. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? You know, in Acts 23, when Paul 
is being interrogated by the high priest. The high priest asks one of his attendants to slap the Apostle Paul the same way that Jesus was slapped that night. And Paul responded by saying, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Jesus just responds with majestic composure and answers with irrefutable logic. Jesus just says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas realizes at this point he's going to get nowhere. And so he sends Jesus to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now we move back out to the fire and the second part of Peter's denial. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Once again, Peter has an opportunity to stand up for Jesus. But for the second time, the one that they called Rock wants to crawl under a rock. I mean, Peter wants to just be, to make himself invisible at this point. But he, he can't. Verse 26 says, One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Now at this point, Peter is shaking in his shoes because if he's spotted as the one who did the sword slashing earlier in the evening, he knows he is absolutely doomed. And so once again, he denies it, and Mark tells us that he denied it with curses. Now this is interesting, because Mark is based on the testimony of Peter. And of all the four Gospels, it's the Gospel of Mark that shows the flaws and the, and the mistakes and frailties of Peter more than, than any other. And that just shows you Peter's humility. Peter, in his own testimony and in his own preaching, talked more than anybody else about his own failure on this night. Mark 4.71 says that at that point, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the very moment that he said those words... The cry of this rooster cut through the air like a knife. And something else pierced the heart of Peter. And Luke tells us what it was. It says the Lord turned. At that very moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We now move to the final phase of Jesus' trial. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Jesus is now shuffled to Pilate's headquarters. I mean, just think about this. 
Think about this. This this is the judge of all the earth. And he's being shuffled from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate. The other Gospels mention an appearance before Herod as well. Here is the judge of all the earth being shuffled from one puny human judge to another. During the night at the house of Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin had already sentenced Jesus to die. But the Jewish leaders were unable to execute anybody without Roman permission. So as much as it pained them to do it, they have to take Jesus to Pilate, this Roman, this Gentile who they despise. But they don't go into his house because they don't want to defile themselves so that they'll be able to eat the Passover later in the day. Now, the hypocrisy of this is not lost on John. The hypocrisy of, of caring about ceremonial defilement on Passover while they care nothing about the moral defilement of murdering an innocent man on Passover. And this man is the ultimate Passover lamb himself. None of this is lost on John. But they don't go into the, the headquarters of Pilate lest they defile themselves. And so a Pilate comes out to them. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. These guys are in no mood to answer any questions. They, they are there for Pilate merely to rubber stamp what they've done, and they don't want to have to answer any questions whatsoever, and basically what they're saying to him is that, hey, you know the deal. You know the deal. You know why we're here. Do what you're supposed to do. There's just, throughout the exchange between these Jewish leaders and Pilate, there's just mutual hatred. They hate Pilate. Pilate hates them. And so they practically spit at Pilate here. And he spits right back in verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now he says this to humiliate them. Because he knows they can't do it. He knows that they have to have his permission for anybody to be put to death. And so this is Pilate's way of just putting them in their place. Judge them yourselves by your own law. He knows they can't do that. What he's doing here is forcing them to say, in humiliation, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And of course, all of this is playing into exactly what Jesus has prophesied about how he was going to die. Verse 32 says, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In chapter 12, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, he means lifted up on a cross. And only the Romans could do that. 
crucifixion was abhorrent. It was a horror to Jews. They considered anyone who was killed upon a tree to be under a curse. And later on in Galatians, Paul is going to look back at this and say, oh yes, it was a curse in more ways than you could possibly have understood. He says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul's quoting there from Deuteronomy 21. Do you see how the whole Bible is coming together? The whole Bible comes together in Jesus. There's a scarlet thread of blood that runs all the way through the Old Testament, all through the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, and it all centers on Jesus. Verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. What an amazing answer. Jesus doesn't deny his kingship. But he tells Pilate, my kingship is unlike any kingship that you have a conception of. You think of kingship in political terms. You think of it in terms of armed might. My kingship is different. And he says it's not from this world. Very important. You know, a lot of people see what Jesus says here at the beginning of this verse. My kingdom is not of this world. And they think, oh, okay, well, you know, the kingdom, that's just up there somewhere, you know, and that doesn't have anything to do with what's happening on earth. Not so. Literally here, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not from this world. It did not originate in this world, but it is destined to change this world. Jesus is coming again. His kingdom is going to be consummated on earth, and until then, we work. His kingdom has already been inaugurated, and we work for the advance of His kingdom. And we pray for His kingdom. How does Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. That means we have a job to do. All of us, in seeking to win people to Christ, make disciples do missions, live out the gospel through justice and righteousness and mercy and all the callings in our lives. We're to be a part of advancing His kingdom. Verse 37, Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king and... The implication here is that he's saying, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus, ever the evangelist, is really offering an invitation here to Pilate to seek the truth. 
to seriously inquire as to what is truth, what the truth is, that the truth is out there. Seek it. Pilate's heart is hard. Pilate says to him in verse 38, he answers him, what is truth? You know, this is our culture. The way that he puts it is not, I'm seriously seeking truth. The way that he puts it is, truth. There is no truth. You know, this is where most of the people in our culture are, folks. I mean, you know, if there is no... It, once you deny the objective truth of the Word of God, there's nothing left to stand on but your own subjective whims. That's no basis on which to build a life. That's no basis on which to raise a family or anything else. You know, everything's up for grab at that, grabs at that point. Once we deny the objective truth of God's Word... After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And once again, this is, the, this is dripping with irony. Pilate is speaking so much more than what he, he understands. Because the truth of the matter is, there was no guilt in him. But Jesus was going to take our guilt upon himself so that one day we can stand before a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus stands before these earthly rulers. He who has no sin goes through these trials, stands before these, these earthly authorities, goes to a cross, and takes our sin upon Himself so that we can be clothed with His righteousness and be able to stand before a holy God one day, clothed in the, the righteousness of Christ with a right standing before God. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus has done. It's because He who had no guilt and no sin took our guilt and sin upon Himself. Now, the, the fact that Pilate says... I find no guilt in him. You may think for a moment, Pilate's going to exonerate him. Oh no. <laughs> because Pilate was not a man of principle. Pilate was a man of self-preservation. It's not about principle. He's about self-preservation. He is not going to stand on principle and exonerate Jesus. He is going to stand on self-preservation and execute Jesus. Because if he doesn't have Jesus executed, it's going to be trouble. It's going to be trouble in Jerusalem. Word of that is going to get back to Rome. Not good for his career. And so he does the expedient thing, the political thing. He finds this loophole to sort of wash his hands of the whole thing. Verse 39, he says to them, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Now, what this was, was every Passover as a goodwill gesture, the Romans would release one Jewish 
prisoner. And they could choose who that was going to be. And so Pilate says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's tweaking them by saying that because he knows they don't believe that. He says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, by this point, the other Gospels tell us that a crowd was gathering. It wasn't just the religious leaders anymore. The crowd was building. And when they see Jesus in Roman custody, Jesus is up there, Pilate, in Roman custody, all of their hopes that Jesus could be the Messiah were dashed. Because in their minds, the Messiah is not one who allows himself to be taken by the Romans. The Messiah would be one who would kick out the Romans. And so when they see Jesus in Roman custody, the crowd is crushed with disappointment, and their disappointment turns to anger. And the other Gospels tell us they join in and they cry out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate asked, Do you want me to release to you the King of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas! Now, Barabbas was a robber. And Mark and Luke add that he was also a murderer. A notorious sinner. But I'll tell you who Barabbas really is. It's you and me. Because Jesus was going to die in His place that day. And in ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your amazing love. We thank You for giving Your Son that He was bound so that we can be set free. That He died so that we can live. Father, I pray for anyone here today that doesn't yet know Jesus. Father, I pray that Today, they would turn to Jesus, turn from trying to do life apart from Him and turn to Him and trust in His finished work for them. Father, I pray for those of us who, who know Jesus, but Lord, we, we want to love Him more. We want our lives to count more for the Gospel. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would understand in a deeper way how much we are loved by you, that we might love you more and love others more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, 
I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.